Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and today I'm talking about Return of Condor Heroes uh, and how that's impacted some of my gaming lately. This is uh, something that you know, I'm going to do a, uh, a blog entry for this, kind of like I did with the other one, where this is really for helping me get out some of my thoughts. Some of these will be a little crude and rough and not exactly well thought out. I apologize. Um, I apologize that it's, uh, you know, that it's not a diamond, but that's just sort of how I use the podcast. And then hopefully by the time I get to the blog, I have a little bit more refinement in the idea. And I usually put, will be posting these podcasts along with the blog entry itself. And for this one, I'm also going to be posting links to the, uh, readings that Kenny and I have been doing of Return of Condor Heroes. This is something that's become, uh, pretty, uh, pretty helpful for, um, uh, some of my campaign planning, so I want to talk about it. But uh, but if you, if you guys aren't familiar with Return of Condor Heroes, it's a uh, uh, a Lewis Cha book, um, and it's 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 the second part in a in a three part story. There's it's a trilogy basically, and each each story is about four volumes and ten chapters each. It's, it's quite long. Uh, it's a time investment, but it's well worth it. And if you don't have the time to uh, read the books. You could watch the series, though. Me and Kenny actually crunched the numbers, and I think, I think you're actually better off time-wise reading the books because it's faster to read the books than it is to watch the series. Uh, series are usually about 50 episodes, an hour each, so you're still looking at 50 hours if you uh, if you uh, if you watch the series. Um, so, anyways, one one of the things we've been doing is we're doing it five chapters at a time, which I'm enjoying because normally when I read stuff, I you know, I read it fast. I read it in like a day, three days. You know, I try to get it done uh, in a reasonable time frame so that it's not something that's just sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, that I'm slowly working my way through. But for these podcasts, we need to do five chapters at a time. That's just sort of the structure we have. And it's very similar to how I did the Strange Tales stuff before. And that means I, you know, we can't just do the book, the entire book, and then talk about every chapter because it all kind of blurs together when you do it that way. So I'm, I'm reading one chapter a day. And I'm finding that enormously beneficial in that it, uh, it gives me uh, a different perspective on the story. I'm, I'm focused on details that I wouldn't focus on otherwise. I'm thinking about aspects of the story that I wouldn't think about because I would already be two chapters ahead by the time I get to that thought. And it's, uh, it, it makes it a little bit more memorable to, memorable to me. So... Um, you know, my memory is not the greatest in the world. I think I have a pretty shoddy memory, but it definitely, uh, I definitely remember better when I'm doing, you know, a single chapter a day. And I've kind of been approaching Strange Tales the same way. This is a, uh, something where I've been, uh, you know, I, 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 if there's one thing out there that I go back to more than anything else, it's Strange Tales. And I, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going through it again. Uh, but this time I'm doing one entry at a time in one of the one of the larger volumes um, so that I uh, it's very slow, but it's also uh, it really gives me a lot more ideas when I do it that way. So uh, so again, this is just sort of an odd observation I've had with this process where it's counterintuitive to me because I would normally be inclined to, to read something quickly. And that's and to be honest, that's how I normally do read something. I'm I'm not usually going to give something this amount of time and uh, and spread it out so long. But every once in a while, I'm finding that I kind of prefer to do that. So that's what you know when I uh, when it's when it's uh, especially if it's something I want to kind of really sink my teeth into and, and think about. So 
So again, not much to do with the topic of discussion, but it's just sort of a side note that I noticed that. And I think what I want to talk about today is sort of family because, and by family, I don't just mean literal family. I mean, you know, martial family, sworn siblings, other, you know, other kinds of social ties. Uh, this is something that it's not unique to Wuxia at all. It's not unique to the time period or the place. You know, family is sort of a universal thing. And it's something that's very easy to overlook in an RPG for very good reason, actually. It's the sort of thing that can be a pain to deal with. There are all kinds of pl of, of potential uh, potential uh, uh, pitfalls that you could you could encounter as a GM or as a player dealing with this. And so a lot of times you, you either avoid it or you minimize it. And I think there's valid reason for not making it the center of attention at all times. At the same time, I've increasingly been using family in most of my games, and in particular in the Wuxia games. And I'm making use of family in new ways uh, as I've been thinking more and more about Return of Condor Heroes again and 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 looking at things like the relationship between Yang Guo and Guo Fu, who's um, the daughter of Guo Jing and, and Wang Rong. And, you know, she I, again, I'm going to spoil some stuff. So if you don't want to know what happens in Return of Condor Heroes, you might want to stop listening now. Um, I think that if you're a fan of it, you probably already know this, but I'm just, I just want to lay out, there is a spoiler here, but Guofu is one of the most important characters in the book because not only, um, is she sort of antagonistic to Yangor and, you know, in, in, in her most innocent form, she's a, you know, maybe a pest to him, but midway through the book, she starts making some decisions that they're not villainous. She doesn't quite cross the road into villainy, but she... She uh, cuts off Yangor's arm in a uh, in a moment of rage, and that has catastrophic consequences. I mean, just just you know, the the arm itself is obviously something, but it also leads him down some roads. And she also uh, poisons him and his lover uh, Zhao Longnu uh, with with two needles, mistaking him for for Li Mochu. Uh, so she didn't mean to, but she very rashly used the needles. And because it was at a crucial moment, a lot of other stuff was going on. The, the end result of this is that it leads to a situation where it seems like Zhao Longnu is going to die and that there's not much they can do about it. And so she basically ruins his life on multiple occasions. And it's all due to these, these rash decisions that she makes. But she's the daughter of Guo Xing and Huang Rong. Guo Xing is the, uh, the sworn brother of his father. And... He, Guo Xing and Huang Rong are one of the closest things that he has to an actual family. I mean, they're not his his parents. His mother died when he was very young, and his father, who was not a nice guy, was 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 killed in a in a um, uh, when he when he tried to lay a palm on Huang Rong, and he was poisoned. And so, it's a uh, you know there's, there's a whole side talk we could get into on that, but I'm going to avoid it. Uh, but but basically. You know he's got he's got uh, uh, the Gua family, and he has uh, people like Uyung Fung, who's sort of like a um, uh, I guess you could see sort of like a sworn a sworn grandfather. Sworn, uh, he's in the translation that I'm currently reading. He he uh, he, he calls him a godfather, um, but he's, he's he he very much functions. In a, he has a paternal relationship to Yang Gua. Uh, however, he does not. Uh, survive the entire book. Another spoiler. Um, so the the most long lasting f 
family relationship he seems to have is the one with Guo Xing and Huang Rong. And, and so he can't just escape this connection that he has with Guo Fu. Uh, and there are benefits to the relationship he has with Guo Jing. Guo Jing is a great hero. He has all kinds of respect and connections in the martial world. And so, you know, again, you don't want every family relationship to be like the one between Yang Guo and Guo Fu. That's a, uh, that's a, that would not be a good situation to constantly throw at the party. But you can have those kinds of relationships, and you can have the kind of relationship that maybe he has with Guo Xing and with Rong Rong. The, the thing is to have a complete picture of all these different relationships. Some of them are going to be good, some of them not so good. But then taken together, they form uh, a network that, you know, produces obligations and uh, and and duties and and uh, and responsibilities, you know. And again, again, these, I can't emphasize enough. This isn't just a matter of this being wuxia, and therefore these obligations are somehow more important. I think that this is an, these are obligations that if you live in even a modern family, you 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 can you can appreciate. Um, you know, I I have family obligations, and I it's you know I can't just shirk them. Um, you know, and so uh, it's a sort of a you know easy thing to grasp and. You, you don't have to, you know, um, it's it's not, it's, this isn't as much about uh, uh, sort of, you know, authentic settings issues as it is about creating interesting family drama. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not as interested in the, uh, um, in, in, in that other aspect of it at this moment. I'm interested in sort of the human drama that player characters can easily connect to. Um, and so what I want is I want for the players to sort of, if they have a mom character, to sort of, you know, be able to understand that as a mom character, as, a, as a something that they could connect to in real life. Um, if they have a character who's a brother, to sort of be able to, you know, appreciate that relationship, you know, from either what they know of their own relationship with a brother or with a sibling or someone who's like a brother or brothers that they've seen. And and so, uh, you know, in a, and I find it, I find it produces uh, a very interesting uh, tempering effect on the players. They, they... You know, the, you, again, you, you can sort of take a murder hobo and if you surround them with people that have affection for them like a family would, it changes the way that character acts. That character still might be a murder hobo. He still, you know, he still might go around killing people or doing whatever that character does. But you'll notice in the presence of those family members a change. And, and, and I, I, I think it's, it's often a missing component in, in campaigns again like I said before with good reason sometimes but uh, if you take the time and effort to sort of draw out the different family members uh, and don't just sort of throw, you know no, don't just say okay you got a brother and here he is like really think okay what makes this brother tick you know why you know and it doesn't and again you don't want it to all be good and bad it's you know it's got to just be different personalities with different goals and interests and you know the the, the, the commonality is the is the family um so I, I've been doing, you know, I've been, uh, you know, just thinking about that more and trying to apply it more. And, you know, you can sort of see it in my Lady 87 campaign. You can see it in my Disposable Disciples campaign. Um, I think that uh, it's, it's producing some interesting results, sort of bringing more of that into focus. It's, it's again, not something that I always do. And it's, and it, and it, it's something that, you know, does tend to sort of arise in different forms. I've had characters get married. I've had characters have children. But now I'm sort of trying to focus more on, per you know, like the the parent relationship, the the brother sister relationship, the relationship with different cousins and things like that. 
um, you know, I'm, I'm finding that as a, a really helpful anchor for characters. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, it's something that we, we, you know, if you, if you followed our, um, we had a campaign called Storms the Martial World. That in that one, there were some characters whose parents were important and extended family were important, and uh, it really paid dividends in the campaign. And I'm finding that here in our um, Lady of the Seven campaign, it's important. I think I'm also finding that the GM has certain responsibilities when it comes to family members because they're the sort of tools that if you abuse them you could really turn the players off to the idea of uh of, of having family uh you know be a thing in the campaign and so i'm i'm trying to be very careful about it i'm i, I i'm trying to be thoughtful in in uh in how i approach it and i and i'm making a point of 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 having enough good enough bad that in the end players will regard it as is is something that to be desired you know they won't you know because i think if i think if, if you if you if you make every family relationship dysfunctional then they're going to do what people do in the real world they're going to just you know avoid their family and uh and you can invoke things in the setting that might make that harder like you know the filial piety or whatever but at the end of the day these are martial heroes they can still ultimately do what they want and i think that uh that you 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 you're you're better off you know making family that is desirable for them to to be around uh you know with the occasional difficult relative um the occasional really difficult relative but you want it to be kind of balanced and and i'm finding that works um and that doesn't mean that there aren't complications you know like in in one of my campaigns the player characters have uh, found out that their mother is a this great martial hero from the past and it's a perfectly healthy functional you know good relationship they get along with the mother she gets along with them um but it, the complication is she's wanted by the empire and so that's forcing them to make some choices but none of it is uh something where they resent the mother it's not it's not producing uh an issue with uh with them not wanting family ties because they still are gaining a lot from that relationship she's teaching them techniques uh she's giving them insights into what's going on around them in the world uh you know you know if you you know so so i feel like if you do throw a complication in like that there should be some benefits that make the complication worth their time otherwise you know like i said they might just you know take off uh or or they just won't want to engage that kind of thing again when you when you bring it up to them. So um, so yeah. So I, I, again, this is something where this is all sort of really stemming from some of the focus of me and Kenny's discussions where we've been talking about the characters and and some of the things that, that come up. And one of them is this sort of uh, you know the different relationships that are uh, important to Yangoa and and in particular the family relationships. I think also the relationships that operate within a sect. You know, a sect is also a little bit like a family, and some of the language used to describe sect connections are familial. So, uh, so, so taking that approach as well, uh, you know, for example, in, in Return of Condor Heroes, uh, Limocho is the villain, but she also is part of the same sect that Yangor is part of. They're both part of the ancient tomb sect, and she is described as uh, his martial uncle. And so I think that, uh, you know, and again, this is a translation, so you know, t you know, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. Uh, I'm not an expert on the language, but uh, but it's it's definitely you know uh, a type of relationship that uh, 
that has meaning in the book, even if it's not a perfect one. And you can sort of, you know, apply those kinds of connections with, with the sex and the, um, you know, you know, so as an example, um, uh, you know, one character that, that came up is, 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 uh, Yoon Wan, who's a, um, uh, uh, a former member of the sect that their mother belonged to. And he would have been sort of similar to a Lee Mocho type character, but that was a completely sort of, I don't know what the word, a poisoned relationship. They, there's, you know, there's no good blood there. So uh, he's sort of the antagonistic martial uncle. But then in the other end of things, they have the Iron God Moon character who, when they first met him, he just seemed like kind of a little bit of a dope, like a really crude sort of martial bully who just, you know, is abusing the local population and kind of involved in petty crimes and, and you know, owns like a gambling hall. And, you know, he's just kind of like a, a thug. He's not really a, um, uh, you know, he's not, he wasn't particularly terrible, but he also wasn't somebody that you would expect to have, you know, uh, you know, any, any, uh, any amount of righteousness and, and, and any amount of sort of like lofty aspiration. But what they found out about him was that he was once a, something of a pupil of their mother. He, he wasn't a member of her sect, but he, he, uh, he admired her greatly. She taught him particularly, you know, uh, in terms of just, you know, how to look at the world and how to, uh, um, how to survive. And she also, you know, uh, you know, taught him a little bit of what he knows about martial arts. And so, there was that tutelage relationship that made him uh, like their martial uncle. So we there was some debate over whether to call him a, a brother or martial uncle, but the, they ended up calling him a martial uncle. And and so again, you know, it's just it's it's become an interesting relationship, and it's one that's largely beneficial to the party. They they can go to Iron God Mung, and he he's helped them escape from the city unnoticed. He's he's let them know when the authorities are, uh, you know, after them. And in a campaign like the one I run, that stuff matters. That 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 can mean the difference between getting caught by the empire and not getting caught by it by having to deal with ten yao surrounding them in an alley, or you know, escaping without any problems. So. Uh, in fact, it was a real shame. Our last, uh, our last episode that we recorded, we had a technical issue with the recording, and so in the end, you don't catch all of these details. I, I think some of the Iron Guard Mung stuff you can hear, but some of the other stuff that can, you know is is not totally clear because my audio cuts out. And there's, I, uh, what we what we what we determined, and this is totally aside from the talk, but what we determined was that it was because of uh, normally I start the calls on Skype and somebody else had started the call, and so the recorder was going through too many pathways or something and it, it must have triggered a problem but but either way you know uh there is a a, a podcast of those sessions and so you can sort of go and listen to them and hear what i'm talking about it's the lady 87 campaigns they might not be quite as engaging as i'm describing because it's a bunch of people playing a rpg so you know you're gonna have to sit through a lot of dice rolling and you know small talk to get to the stuff i'm talking about but when we're at the table that's the stuff that we're experiencing and so um i think it's a uh, Again, I think a lot of the stuff is really coming from the Return of Condor Heroes stuff that me and Kenny have been talking about. And it's funny because when I started the Lady 87 campaign, I really imagined it as a uh, Gulong type thing. And, you know, if you follow me, you know that I really like Gulong and I like stuff based on Gulong. And I think it's a, um, you know, he sort of does the characters born the song, wrong side of the tracks. And it's interesting that it's kind of gone from being 
a Gulong campaign to being a Louis Cha campaign. Um, and I kind of like having both elements present. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit more of a rich experience, I think. Um, I was, I really was going to make this all Gulong. And then I think in the end, it's a little better that it's more balanced. Uh, but, um, and again, if you, you know, if you don't, if you, if you're unfamiliar with Gulong, I would recommend going to a place called Wuxia World and checking out a story called Hero Shed No Tears, which was translated by Deathblade, who is writing the Legends of Ogregate book. He's, um, he's a good translator and it's a really excellent story, but there's also another story I would recommend called Sword of the Third Young Master. And you can probably find that, you know, online at various places. I think I found it on a, on a translation forum and, uh, and, you know, there's the fan translations all over and somebody had a really good sort of edit, like people, different people will translate them and then somebody will come along and try to bring the translation together so that like all the character names are the same and everything's cohesive and makes sense. And so I found a good one of that and, uh, I really enjoyed that story, but if you're not familiar with him, you know, check that out, watch a movie like, uh, um, Death Duel or Swordsmaster, both drawn from the same material, uh, or Magic Blade, and you'll get a good sense of what Gulong is all about. And definitely check out a movie called Hero Shed No Tears. That's one of my favorite uh, sort of Gulong-inspired films, and it's it's done by Choi Yuen, so it's it's a it's an excellent movie. Um, but again, this this you know this just uh, uh, th- this campaign was originally intended to to be like a Gulong story and it, and it is, but it's also got, you know, more Louis Cha now and some other elements. And I think, um, Oh, and you know what? Also, there's another movie I'd recommend. Uh, it's not based directly on a Gulong story, but if you read the, uh, if you see the movie reign of assassins with Michelle Yeoh, that is intended to feel like a Gulong story. And so it definitely has that vibe to it, I think. And I would recommend it, uh, just to get a sort of a sense of that. It's sort of a, um, it's a little darker. Uh, his, his, his stories are a little darker and, uh, you just kind of got to experience them. Uh, you know, there's another book called the 11th son. That's a good translation of one of his stories. It's worth checking out. But, um, but anyways, uh, you know, th- this campaign has become just because I'm, I've been, you know, every week I do a, a recap of the five chapters and we talk about them. It's been on my head and, I find that's inescapable. Um, when you're working on stuff or when you're running a campaign, whatever you're sort of breathing in tends to work its way in. Even stuff like like that's not related to it. Like I've been uh, I've been doing these Babylon 5 discussions with Adam where we watch Babylon 5 and we talk about the episodes. And I think we've been doing this since the end of the summer, the beginning of fall. And we're now in the fifth season. we got 10 episodes left. And... And I've been very surprised at the amount of Babylon Five stuff that's made it into my campaign. Not like directly, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't like look at it and go, ah, that's obviously Londo. But there are definitely things that are creeping into my campaigns that are inspired by some of the things that have happened in Babylon Five. Um, you know, if I watch a lot of Doctor Who, suddenly time travel makes its way into my games. That just kind of, you know, what tends to happen. And so in this case, you know, this campaign has become a real blend of Gulong and, and Lewis Shaw. And, and, uh, and so I think that, uh, I think that's good. It's a nice, it's a nice combination and it's a difficult balance to strike because what I find is, um, we sort of have the darker 
pull of the Gulong stuff with the, I don't know, you could say more aspirational uh, pull of the, uh, uh, not that Gulong isn't aspirational, but there's like a darkness to it. There's like a, you, you feel like it's written by somebody who spent much of his time in, in bars and strip clubs and, uh, and, and just sort of think like looking at things from a, a very different perspective. And the uh, and the Lewis Cha stuff is just in my opinion, my, my very humble opinion. It's um, it's it's a little bit more uh, optimistic in the sense that uh, uh, you know the the, the characters the, the the heroes feel more rewarded for their efforts. I'll put it that way. Um, but again, you know, it does depend on the story. There's always exceptions. I don't want to. You know, one of the things that sometimes happens when we talk about wuxia is we lay down rules that people feel like they have to follow. And I think that's the worst thing you can do. I think it's important to remember. It's like any other genre. It's always, you know, able, capable of growth. It, you know, if you look at Gu Long, you see all these other influences coming in. Um, I mean, you know, even things like Hemingway make their way in there. And so I think that um, uh, you, you know, you don't want to you don't want to be too rigid because you know the thing that makes an individual wuxia movie interesting isn't that oh it hits all the the dots on wuxia yeah this is a super wuxia movie it's that no they they added the element of oh we're gonna make this have a little bit of a nosferatu feel or a little bit of this they're pulling in other flavors that make it more interesting so you know i think the worst thing you can do is say no it's got to be these five things and if it isn't it's not right and it's you know that's that's not this you're not going to have a long-term campaign that way um you know i'm a very uh you know i i i'm just a fan of the genre i'm not like a an expert i try not to approach these things too academically but the one thing i will say that i i feel pretty confident about just because i've been running campaigns for lengths of time now and they haven't really uh faltered unless i've wanted them to falter because i want to do something different um is is that i i I think that you are um you're better served you know allowing yourself to bring in other elements on occasion because if you don't you're eventually going to get bored i mean you you know it's it's sort of like if you ran a if you ran a a fantasy campaign that always felt like and i'm just using this as an example because it's well known i thought it's a great story i don't i don't have anything against it I, I grew up reading it and I liked it. Um, I like I like uh, R.A. Salvatore stuff. Um, but I just want to use it as an example because I, I, I think that you'll get what I mean when I bring it up. But if you had every single campaign, you know, operate like the Icewind Dale trilogy, you never allowed anything else to come in, it would get boring and you wouldn't, your campaign wouldn't last that long. You could probably do a pretty long campaign on all Icewind Dale stuff. But I mean, eventually you're going to have to bring in some other influences. And so I think that's, that's the way to think about you know, wooshy. You can't. You know, you, even if you're just like, um, you know, uh, you know, if you if you're just doing, uh, if you if you're doing like one thing all the time, it just it, eventually people do tend to lose interest. And I will say this: wusha itself is a pretty vast genre in terms of what it can support. I think I think it, I think it has a lot of uh, um, elements that you can you know that can uh, uh, be drawn on you know, endlessly, but I, I think that the, the, the way not, the, the way that I would say not to think about it when you're running it is to avoid treating it like it's a museum artifact. Um, you know, you want to have fun and, and so, 
you know, and I don't know how I got on this topic because I'm, I'm very far from what I was talking. So I'll try to wind this back to my original point. But I, I think it's important because it has come up. I have talked to people. And by the way, I've been seeing a lot of Wuxia stuff online, which I think is super exciting. I think there's a, uh, I've been seeing a lot more people uh, blogging about their games. I've been seeing a lot more people streaming their games. Um, I've been seeing a lot more Wuxia games in general being made. And I think I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think one of the major ones has probably got to be the uh, the sort of boom in um, accessibility to the genre just because of the internet and things like that, and the fact that you know, like when I when I first got into it, you you know you would go to the video store and get what you could. Um, now you can you can see everything, and I think what that has allowed for is people to get a better sense of what the genre really can encompass even if they were fans before you know you might find an angle that you didn't even think about before because you say oh i didn't know about this director and now i'm suddenly aware of this whole sort of subgenre within the 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 uh the the genre that's 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 you know would work great in a game and so i guess what i'm trying to say is uh, i i think i think we're you know, hopefully, hopefully what won't happen is what people won't start rolling their eyes at us. But I think it's good that there's so much out there because uh, the way that I've always run Wuxia campaigns is I've always like, like, what like, again, this is before I made Ogre Gate, but like whenever, like if I was running a 3E Wuxia or martial arts campaign without fail, I'd go out and buy every book that I could find that was in any way connected to martial arts or Wuxia for RPGs. Uh, simply because I needed as much resources as I could get into the campaign. Um, and, and so I think it's, I think the more people we have making stuff, the better, and the more people we have playing stuff, the better. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully, uh, you know, as, uh, as, especially as you see more of this, um, some of these other genres gaining traction, like Shan and stuff, uh, I think we're going to, you know, I think we're going to see some interesting things. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, uh, but I think the one thing I can, I can contribute to the conversation here is that, uh, what I've seen in my own campaigns, that's, uh, that's made them survive has been, um, number one, not taking it too seriously, uh, and, and realizing that it's a, you know, it's a genre that's meant to be fun and, and engaging and, uh, and that you, you know, you, you can mess up and continue going and you don't have to get everything right every time. Uh, but number two, uh, you know, not not shying away from doing what the great wuxia writers and great wuxia directors themselves did, which is, you know, bring in other sources of inspiration to, to add an additional flavor to it. Um, you know, again, you at a certain point, it doesn't. It's not wuxia anymore, but it's a, uh, it it's a, uh, it, it 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 can it can remain. Uh, within the genre as long as you sort of have a strong enough feel for it and i'm gonna have to stop the podcast now because i have real world things happening around me so i will let you go and i've been going for 30 minutes anyways and i will talk to you later